The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, joining you from the lands of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples, the Songhees and the Esquimalt First Nations, recently known as Victoria, B.C., Canada. Devoted listeners of this show will remember that this summer I had a thought-provoking conversation with Sophie Strand, author of The Madonna Secret. It's episode 205. In that episode, I asked about the similarities between Sophie and her character, Miriam, Mary of Magdalene, Mary Magdalene. Particularly, I was curious with regard to her upbringing and the relationship with her parents, her parents as scholars, writers, you might even say public intellectuals. I followed up on that question in the fall, in episode 218, with her mother, Sophie's mother, Perdita Finn, and we talked about Perdita's book, Take Back the Magic. Now, today, we're rounding out the trilogy as we welcome Clark Strand to the show to talk about his book, Waking Up to the Dark. Clark has written numerous books and articles. His work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and the Washington Post, and he is co-author with Perdita of the book, The Way of the Rose. In this episode, we go back to the beginning in more ways than one. In this episode, we explore deep time, the deep time of our Neolithic ancestors, and even just how distant more recent history feels, just how distant the world of our ancestors of less than 100 years ago seems, as we discuss the ways in which electric lights have shaped our lives and our psyches, and how this has led us to the climate crisis we're in today. Clark's book, Waking Up to the Dark, is an urgent message from an apparition he calls Our Lady of Climate Change about the challenges to come. As always, I was excited to speak with a fellow traveler on the path of conscious collapse, as I think Carolyn Baker put it. And I'm sure those who've enjoyed my episodes on this topic will feel as much kinship as I felt in this conversation. And for those who are newer to the topic of collapse, I think you'll find this a gentle entree into the conversation, which I mean, by the way, just as sort of social commentary as somebody who's been talking about this for a long time, I'm noticing that collapse is being talked about more openly, more frequently, and is by, well, in my world, most folks, but many folks, even in the more like the mainstream these days, think collapse is more readily accepted as simply factual rather than fear-mongering. Like more people are hip to the reality of collapse. They understand what we mean by that term. But if you're novice in your understanding of collapse, I do recommend you check out my episode from, I don't know if it was last year or a couple years ago, Collapse in a Nutshell, episode 161. And I'll link to that in the show notes. But without further ado, Here's my conversation with Clark Strand. So Clark, what identities do you lead with? Well, Carmen, uh, I mean, professionally writer, poet, uh, poetry teacher. I think that would be the way I would uh, uh, I would identify myself. You know, in the past, I've been a Buddhist monk, 
I was an editor, magazine editor in the city. But nowadays, uh, uh, I mostly uh, write and teach poetry. I think many people would recognize the the name of the magazine. Are you? Yeah, Tricycle Magazine. I still write for them. I, I write a, a regular print column called On Haiku, right? The 17-syllable verse form that originated in Japan is now spread all over the world. And I write a uh, monthly haiku challenge where I give a seasonal topic to people and ask them to write as many poems as they want on it. And then at the end of the month, I uh, choose a winner and two runners up and I write about them. And it's a very popular feature of the magazine. Uh, gives me a chance to talk a lot about ecology, spirituality, and sometimes Buddhism, but not, you know, being so much stuck in the Buddhist box. Uh, mm -hmm. Tricycle, very uh, uh, broad spectrum magazine that, uh, you know, looks at the arts and uh, philosophy and modern life through a somewhat Buddhist lens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for those of us who explore spirituality uh in the same way that other people like to explore you know the planet i would consider tricycle kind of like the national geographic of spirituality magazines where you find people have them from ages and ages ago yeah. <laughs> you know, still I, th I think a lot of it has to do with the you know the demographics of the readership you know the uh, uh buddhism you know in the when it began to go mainstream you know in like the 80s and 90s um, it was sort of the, uh, I think, largely sort of aspirational for people who wanted, who were largely dissatisfied or or maybe just not completely satisfied with the uh, religion or lack thereof, you know, that they were raised with. And so they embraced Buddhism, uh, you know, I think as a way of, you know, exploring their spiritual lives and finding, a, you know, a greater relevance uh, for for their spiritual uh, beliefs and practices in the modern uh, day. And Tricycle very much sort of stepped into that that moment. We began publishing in the early 1990s. And, uh, you know, the magazine was originally <clears throat> meant to be the voice of independent Buddhism because, you know, there were magazines, but they were published by, uh, you know, Buddhist, you know, Tibetan lamas and various people, some some very problematic figures to say the least, you know, and there was no one, there was no, uh, you know, print uh, uh, journal uh, or, uh, you know, sort of media uh, source to to regulate or police, you know, the mm. Buddhist world. So in the beginning, you know, we, we published quite a few exposés about, uh, you know, the Buddhist scene. Uh, but gradually, you know, that sort of died down a little bit and Buddhism sort of began to find its footing in America, which I think is where it is now. Mm -hmm. Okay, so haiku, such an unusual and interesting choice for, you know, a, a, an American man trying to find his voice, I guess, as a writer and 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 explore spirituality in the way that you have. What was it about haiku that what, what's the allure of haiku? Gosh, I have to go all the way back to my teenage years to answer that question. I uh, my uh, girlfriend, uh, high school girlfriend, showed up at the tennis courts one day where I was playing a match I was on the tennis team and uh, she had a little flat package wrapped up in brown paper. And uh, at the end of the match, she handed it to me as a gift. This was in the uh, springtime, you know, just before sunset. And uh, she said, these reminded me of you. So I was intrigued. I opened the package and inside was a, 
a little book published by, I think, Japan House Publications or something like that. It's one of the early books on haiku in English. This was in the 1970s. And um, it was 100 haiku translated from the Japanese. And I opened the book to a poem uh, by Kobayashi Issa, one of the great, you know, most beloved haiku poets, Japanese haiku poets. And, and it says, uh, the springtime begins with the perfect simplicity of a yellow sky. And I looked up from the page at that moment, and it was just what he said. The sun was going down, the sky had lost its blue tint, and it, for just a few moments, it was suffused with the sort of greenish yellow of springtime, and then it began to fade. And I was instantly hooked. I went <laughs> back home that night and I read the book, you know, which wasn't long, 100 haiku with, you know, notes and a little commentary. <laughs> I was 100 pages long. I read the whole book through once, and I read through again and again. Next year, I went to college. I went to a, a school in the South, Sewanee University of the South. It was famous for its library because of the Sewanee Review, famous literary quarterly. So it had, uh, you know, an extensive library of poetry and criticism about poetry, probably more so than just about any other uh, uh, college or university in America. And I found shelves and shelves of, of, of books on haiku poetry or Japanese mm -hmm. literature, uh, Asian philosophies and Buddhism. And I just devoured them. That was my real major, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I graduated with a degree in English literature, but mostly it was a, a, a course in independent study that just involved <laughs> me grabbing a handful of books and, you know, taking them out to some bluff where I would just sort of sit all day between classes and devour these books. So I was hooked from then on. And the thing I think I love the most about haiku is, you know, it's just 17 syllables long, five, seven, five syllables with a seasonal reference of some sort. And I had always been very, uh, very much of an outdoor kind of kid growing up. And uh, in college, it just got worse. You know, I just spent <laughs> hours and hours outdoors at strange hours, oftentimes. And uh, I loved, uh, you know, everything I saw in the natural world seemed to speak to me. And haiku poetry gave me a way to speak back. Mm. It gave me a way to follow the seasons and to follow the subtle changes in nature and to begin to draw wisdom from, from those cycles, which are so much older than uh, than we are, than human beings are, even our species, right? These ancient, ancient patterns. And it gave me a way to get in dialogue with the, the natural world and begin to appreciate um, what I think is the real core truth at the bottom of all religion, although most religions have now lost uh, touch with it, which is animism. This mm -hmm. idea that the world and everything in it is fully alive. Haiku poetry is a way of engaging uh, uh, with the aliveness of the world, right, in a group. So, I, you know, it's a very social art. I teach haiku full-time. I think I'm the only person now outside of Japan who literally teaches haiku full-time. That's my job. Uh, <laughs> and I work with people all over the world uh, online, uh, you know, on Zoom and Facebook and various platforms. Uh, but I mostly uh, write haiku and, uh, you know, judge contests and uh, you know, offer teachings, year-long programs for people, and uh, and I just love it. Yeah, and finally, you know, after going on my fifth day, decade of writing haiku, I finally figured out a way to really make a living off of it. <laughs> couldn't possibly be happier. <laughs> yeah, 
thanks internet we'll miss you when you're gone yeah <laughs> so okay so i'm i'm going to cross pollinate we're going to have a crossover episode for people who are dedicated listeners of the podcast recently your wife perdita finn was on the show and so they will know that i'm drawing on that conversation for this this next question which connects buddhism haiku and reincarnation so in your belief in reincarnation, do you feel like there's something about haiku that is pointing you to other lifetimes or some kind of, um, you know, travels in ancient times where you encountered? Well, that's this, an interesting question. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, a number of people, uh, you know, I mean, you know, from reading Perdita's book that, you know, I do, I, I do have past life memories and as does Perdita. And, uh, you know, things that I, I think really sort of crept up on, especially when we got together. I don't I think we had had glimmerings of that before we met. But once we got together, uh, you know, it was just a matter of time, I think, before the pieces began to fall into place. We began to remember things, uh, sometimes remembering the same things, you know, the same moments which we could corroborate for one another. Uh, as far as haiku poetry goes, people are often telling me that I must have been a haiku poet in a past life to to be so crazy about it and uh, to love it to spend so many years uh, you know studying it um, and so it certainly came very naturally to me it just like you know the moment it arrived in my life I knew oh this is th this is what I want to write even though I've written books and uh, you know and longer form poetry and stories and you know all many articles and you know I've, I've done religion writing for newspapers and magazines and things like that and scholarly writing but my first love is haiku poetry and i think that was really uh where i first fell in love with uh with language and the power of language to express i don't know you know interesting insights you know uncanny uh, intuitions things like that, the power of uh, language to reach into our experience uh, and interact with our, our experience of, of the world and to, to, to bring something back from that interaction, which can be shared with other people and, and, and mm -hmm. hopefully become durable. And be, mm -hmm. can be oh, yeah. I mean, I, I having this image of, of language, your words reaching back into the darkness into ancient times and making what's ineffable a tangible um, artifact for this of this moment of memory. It's just a beautiful thought. Okay, I want to bring in. I've invited you here to talk about your book, Waking Up to the Dark, and and to have a collapse conversation, really, because when I read the book, I'm like, ah, oh, I can I. I I sense my own my kin who are writing this book. But of course, you're. <laughs> you know, decades further on the, on the path. So it's, it's exciting to get to tap into your wisdom in the preface of your book, waking up to the dark, you describe the unwelcome reception of electric lighting to your small mountain town, which came in 1924, oh. 99 years. It, I was so, I was flattened for a moment gasping. Yeah. I know this in my mind, not even, a, think, century. Well, not even a century, not even 99 a century. years, four generations. Like it. Okay. So already that just kind of blew my mind. I, I, we know this cognitively. I understand math. Like I know that, that wasn't very long ago, but it is breathtakingly fast to me to think it hasn't even been a hundred years since rural electrification. It, it, 
it's stunning. So let's go, let's begin with sleep. Yeah. What is segmented sleep and how did this sleep pattern change after electrification? Yeah. Well, human beings until uh, really until the industrial, uh, the industrial age, right? Uh, human beings uh, all over the world slept in uh, two segments of approximately four hours in duration with uh, usually, uh, depending on the season, usually one to two hour gap between those, those two segments. It's called bisected sleep, bifurcated sleep, segmented sleep. The ancients called it the first and second sleep of the night. And you can find references uh, to this in Homer, uh, in the Upanishads, uh, in the Bible, uh, many, many references to it. In fact, if you go back to the uh, earliest uh, foundational scriptures for most religions, you find some evidence of it. Uh, Muhammad uh, used to awake in the middle of the night to receive uh, uh, the uh, uh, words of uh, Jibril, the, the angel, right, to, to write down the Quran. Uh, Jesus would rise before dawn, probably around somewhere between 2 and 4 a.m. and go up on a mountaintop to pray. Uh, and the list goes on and on. The Shakyamuni Buddha uh, was enlightened uh, during uh, between the hours of the, uh, uh, I believe it's the ox and the tiger, but basically between 2 and 4 a.m. And so uh, this gap period of time when people would wake um, was a, a, a very holy time. I call it the hour of God. I have been all of my life since I was a young child, for whatever reason, I've been waking up in the middle of the night. And I don't know whether it's because we lived down uh, south. I grew up down south in Al northern Alabama, you know, at a time when the world was a little less electrified, right, during the 1960s. Uh, or uh, whether my parents just put me to bed early and turned out the lights. But I would wake usually after about four hours and I would be awake and I, uh, you know, in bed and I would get a little restless, you know, I mean, what eight or nine year old boy, you know, wants to just lie there in the dark. So I get up and wander around the house. Eventually I thought, well, no one is awake. You know, I realized I could do what I wanted. <laughs> so I would step out on the back porch. And from there, it was just a matter of time before I realized I could wander on the golf course nearby, which I started to do. By the time I was eight years old, I was already doing that. <laughs> and I loved it. I loved the darkness. There was no one else up. I would come back, I would go back to sleep and wake up for the day. This was a pretty much a secret I, I kept for, for years and years. My parents didn't know. My mother caught me coming home one day, uh, one night, and uh, demanded to know where I had been, and I pretended to be sleepwalking. And I can only assume that either she believed the lie or she didn't notice that I was wearing shoes. <laughs> 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 but this kept going all through high school into college and I didn't, um, you know, I, I felt tremendous peace, experienced uh, uh, such beauty um, during these hours, and especially being outside at night, uh, that I, I guess I just assumed that I was eccentric. I didn't know anything about segmented sleep. You know, this is an aspect of the, of the human uh, uh, biological repertoire that mostly been lost or suppressed in the modern age. And so there are very few references to it in the modern world. If you go back only two or three centuries, you find constant references to it in diaries and, and prayer manuals and texts. 
But in the 1990s, a researcher named Thomas Ware, researcher at the National Institutes of Health, he conducted a study where he took people off the street of Bethesda, Maryland, and took them off all forms of electric lighting for a month. And for the first three weeks, they just slept longer, mm -hmm. right? Ware said they were repaying the national sleep debt. So they, they would sleep <laughs> for like nine or 10 hours. And uh, But at week three, a change occurred in every subject in the study. And if you know anything at all about you know, studies like this, you know that 100% results, like when, when the findings, you know, are, are, are that ironclad, that's, that's very unusual. Normally, you're looking at some sort of a statistical curve mm -hmm. and, and trying to make inferences, but this was ironclad. Something was happening. They all woke up after four hours. They were awake for two hours and fell asleep for four more. Mm -hmm. And uh, during this two-hour period, they said they felt a deeper peace than they had ever felt before. Mm -hmm. Ware looked into the, by what was happening in their bodies biochemically, and he discovered that uh, the hormone prolactin, which is uh, the hormone that lets down in nursing mothers and in birds that are roosting on their nests, it's the hormone that uh, reaches elevated levels in the human body while we're asleep so that we uh, don't move, don't injure ourselves when we're dreaming, right? Keeps us peaceful. Well, he discovered that when people were given enough darkness to work with when they weren't extending their days artificially with artificial illumination, but going to bed with the uh, uh, setting of the sun and rising at dawn, that the prolactin levels remained at sleep levels when they woke up. That means that people were waking to a state of mind that we couldn't identify with anything in, in his known, uh, uh, you know, uh, biochemical <laughs> uh, profile, right? He couldn't, he couldn't find anything equivalent to it. Finally, he looked at the research on meditation and he found the closest thing it, he could find to it was, uh, you know, the state of mind experienced by advanced meditators, specifically Tibetan lamas, you know, who had been hooked up to electrodes and, and had their brainwaves measured. So people were experiencing something analogous to deep meditation, just ordinary people in the middle mm -hmm. of the night. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, normally when people wake up in the middle of the night like that, they can, you know, that they, they feel fretful. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a term called the hour of the wolf that's sometimes used to describe that period when people wake up and have insomnia, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they believe they're waking up because they have a, a sleep disorder. In fact, all that's really happened is that it mostly as you get older, the, your metabolic force is not sufficient to override this ancient hardwired impulse to wake in the middle of the night. And so you begin to experience sleep fragmentation. You go okay. to sleep. Okay, is that what it is? You, you, because yeah, some of not. us are still waking up and it's, and, not. And it's, it's, it's not feeling like the hour of God at all. Right. <laughs> no, it feels like the hour of the wolf. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's called sleep fragmentation, but in most people, it's not nowadays, you know, the since where did his study and there's been, you know, so much, right. So much written about it since then. Nowadays, if you go to a sleep specialist and say you wake up in the middle of the night, most ethical sleep doctors will tell you that there's probably nothing wrong with you, especially if you're, you know, in middle to late middle age, and they'll explain that it's a natural thing and not to worry about it. Most people will never come back to see that doctor. 
Some people right. suffer from for, for various reasons, anything from substance abuse to, you know, uh, side effects of some medication they're taking. Some people uh, genuinely do have sleep disorders and need a sleep specialist, but most people don't. Right, right. Okay, most well, that's good to know. need to go to bed earlier. Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. Well, and it's interesting because, you know, so you had this experience since you were a small child. I, my child, who's 20 years old now, uh, has had this segmented sleep. And obviously that was very distressing when we're, you're trying to get a kid up who's really tired because they only just fell back asleep or, and eventually I was like, so we're just not going to do regular school. We're going to find a school that lets them come in, you know, at nine 30 or 10. And that's what we ended up having to do just to get my kid through school without having the arguments and the tension between kind of our normal social societal rhythm and what I could clearly see this child needed to be able to sleep when they needed as long as they wanted. And because when every time they would get up, they would do art and they would oh, write yeah, and they would do these amazing things. So it's like, I, why, why, why would I want to interrupt this? But it was pretty hard to fight against the social norm. Well, you know, since the Industrial Revolution, we've been conditioned to compress our sleep nights, like our work days, into convenient eight-hour blocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's really not natural either for our work lives or for our sleep lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, what happens when we when we uh, uh, extend uh, our, our waking consciousness beyond its, its natural limits? I mean, a lot of things happen. You know, one thing is our, our health suffers. There was a, uh, there were some researchers, uh, Bent Formby and, I um, can't remember Wiley's first name, but uh, Formby and Wiley, these authors, they were uh, researchers uh, at the Manager Institute. They're researching the modern diabetes ep- epidemic. And uh, that put them on the trail of sugar, which put them on the trail of uh, uh, paleobiology and the study of the deep roots of, you know, you know, human health and human uh, disease. And eventually they began to research artificial lighting. Hmm. And what they discovered uh, is that on less than, you know, basically eight to 10 hours of darkness, real darkness without any artificial lighting at all every night, human beings are virtually certain to develop a number of, of uh, infirmities. And they listed them, everything from uh, you know, addiction to uh, uh, diabetes, to heart disease, to, you know, so the list goes on and on and on. When they read uh, Thomas Ware's study on segmented sleep, they went to him and they interviewed him for the book. And they said, don't people have a right to know that on less than 10 hours of of sleep in total darkness every night, they are certain to develop the following diseases or uh, 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 dysfunctions. And they listed all of them. And at the end, Ware said, well, yes, they they should be told and they have a right to know, but it won't matter. No one will ever turn out the lights. (laughs) So here's the one guy. This is the guy who basically discovered circadian rhythms and seasonal affective disorder, right? He's one of the, the, the greatest minds in this field. Here's a guy who, uh, if anyone should know uh, the dangers of artificial lighting, uh, you know, its effects on, on human consciousness, uh, he should know. 
And even he says it won't matter. No one will ever turn off the lights. Yeah. Oh, amazing. So in the book, then you take us from this part of the history of sleep to the next section. And you share about a rabbi who once said, behold, I am taking you on a new path, which is really the old path, the one traveled by our ancestors. And you say he understood two things. First, to connect with God, we must first connect with nature. And to connect with nature, we have to awaken to the dark. But then the problem, as you argue in the book, is our addiction to light, as Ware had said. So you, you write, we are addicted to light and all that it symbolizes, certainty, the supremacy of our own power and our own knowledge, even the belief that all things can be made clear, power, progress, perfection, destiny. We got to have them, even if it destroys our world. So how do you propose, because I, I believe this too. I'm a collapse aware person. I'm a collapse. I believe, you know, it's like, yes, this is not good. I've tried to shape things so that my child could have more of this kind of experience. And and it is exhausting to try to be that out of step with society. I feel nervous about it, even though I want it. So how do you propose that we begin to break the addiction and then see through the illusion of safety that light seems to offer? Um, well, first of all, the, the insights in the uh, passage that you read are not original. They, they uh, come from a man named John Staudenmeyer, a Jesuit historian of technology. And uh, uh, he uh, wrote a, uh, he gave a famous lecture, the Boardman Lecture, about 20 years ago uh, on uh, called Electric Lights Cast Long Shadows. And he looked at the the effect of artificial lighting on on human consciousness, and especially the way in which it erodes a sense of the holy dark. And he he associated the holy darkness with uh, feelings of receptivity and gentleness and uncertainty willingness to think about things, not to jump to conclusions, a willingness to accept certain things as unknown or as uh, unclear. And as you can see, as we have advanced further and further into our, uh, you know, billion watt uh, 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 international culture, uh, we have uh, reached a point where now everybody is certain about everything, right? (laughs) Uh, Seemingly, right? People (laughs) have utterly entrenched views. There's no wiggle room. There's no uncertainty. There's no uh, numinous, right? There's no gray area. There's no place to stand where something could be one thing or another thing, or could be shifting back and forth from one thing to another thing, or even a mixture of the two, right? There's there there's no uh, nuance. There's no subtlety. Really, there's no life, right? Because life is nuanced. Life is numinous, and so um, the question becomes, you know, how do we how do we engage with that? Well, you know, I propose a radical solution for those who are able to follow it uh, in waking up to the dark, which is simply to pull the plug, right? Turn off the lights, you know, use whatever lighting you want. But, you know, when the sun goes down to turn turn them off or turn them down or turn off a lot of them, right? Or simply to go to bed earlier. I call this the literal darkness, I think we're headed there anyway. You know, people where said no one will ever turn off the lights. And I, I think he's probably right. You know, human human beings will not uh, choose to turn off the lights. I think the lights are likely to be turned off for them, for us. 
because we can't uh, uh, sustain the levels of, of consumption, uh, levels of uh, petrochemical use, uh, levels of, of, you know, the catastrophic levels of extraction by which we uh, mine the earth to create our electronics and everything uh, associated with, uh, you know, our, our modern lifestyles and developed nations at least. I don't think that's sustainable. And eventually, uh, it's bound to fall apart. I mean, it's pretty precarious as it is. I mean, infrastructure for for the internet alone is is not as stable as people imagine it to be. So, um, but in the interim, what do we do? Like, how do we maintain our sanity? So I began to uh, think about something that I've been doing for so long that I sort of take it for granted. I didn't. I talked about it a lot in the book, but I didn't offer it so much as a solution when I first wrote it. And that is the cultivated darkness. You really have to, as a modern person, unless you really live off the grid, as some people do, or you live in a country where uh, people uh, still live much as they did a century or two ago. There's still places like that. But if you live uh, in a developed or developing country, then you really have to cultivate the dark as well. Seek out the literal dark, but also cultivate the dark. Cultivated darkness can be uh, uh, approached through uh, meditation, prayer. Uh, some people experience it in a therapeutic session where the, the lights are dimmed and where they're allowed to free associate and to think and to wonder and question what's happening to them. Basically, anything that unplugs us from the, uh, the driven engine of capitalism, right? Anything that unplugs us from that, that get endless getting and spending, anything that, that uh, convinces us that we're not the be-all, end-all of existence, we're not in charge of everything, anything that allows us to, to really loosen our hold on the reins of the world and just to experience uh, our bodies mm -hmm. uh, and other people and our own imaginations, right? Our own minds. Uh, anything that does that uh, is, is, is a way of cultivating the darkness. Mm -hmm. And the simplest way to do it, which I do all the time, I go into a space that's too brightly lit and I lower my eyelids until I just am looking, you know, I'm just seeing maybe two or three feet in front of me. And mm -hmm. it's like, retreating into a shallow cave right in some cultures people use hats for this purpose you know people you know they, they say that people use hats to you know keep the sun off of them but uh, in ancient times uh, people often use hats to create a meditative space for themselves mm. that rabbi you mentioned Reb Nachman of Breslov he said uh, you know, at one point that one of the purposes of those uh, broad brim hats that uh, uh, orthodox men wear is that they can pull it down a little bit and create a space for prayer. Mm, right. right. Or having a shawl over your head or those kinds of things. Prayer shawl. <laughs> exactly. Mm -hmm. So there are all kinds of ways of yoga is a good example, a chanting, prayer, the rosary, many, many, many ways of cultivating a more, a more numinous experience, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, a less brightly lit Let's let's sidebar, Clark. Let's have the meta conversation here because you were doing haiku as a teenager. You were walking out at night, 
by yourself as a nine-year-old, you've been talking about collapse and the end of the internet. How is it for you, like making and maintaining friendships? Like how's your social life? (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, this can be, this, it can be so far outside the norm. And when you make jokes, like, oh, I'll miss the internet when it's gone, 90% of people are sort of like, ha ha, how absurd. But then there's a few people that will be like, yeah, no, I, I get distressed or a little unsettled about those thoughts too. And it's hard to find each other. It's easier with the internet, but how has it been for you being this kind of guy that you are socially? Well, uh, you know, I mean, I still have friends that I uh, had in college uh, and I still have friends that uh, we met when we moved to Woodstock in the 1990s from New York City, where we were, Perdita was uh, teaching at Columbia and I was a magazine editor. Um, but I will, you know, acknowledge that uh, as the two of us have begun to study really, you know, with some clarity, you know, and some honesty of intent, uh, the whole idea of, of collapse, and, and as we become awake to what's really going on in the world, and, and, or, or what isn't going on, right, we're not addressing climate change. I mean, COP is meeting right now, and the, the result will be nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have no expectation that anything will happen, nor have I expected at, at any point that uh, anything significant will would come out of it. The fact that they're meeting in a country that's one of the major oil producers uh, should be uh, for anyone who's just looking at the plain facts, should be uh, should make it clear that uh, we're not going to meet the goals that you know they're setting forth, uh, and, and because we don't really want to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, collectively. Uh, so uh, as we have begun to be more honest with ourselves about these things, uh, you know, we have found that uh, although you know we maintain friendships with people we knew twenty years ago. Uh, those those relationships aren't necessarily uh, as close uh, as they were 20 years ago, right? But what we've found in its place is that we've made new friends, people who are awake, and uh, and uh, people who who've learned to experience joy in the midst of all of this, a way to become centered in the midst of all of it. Um, you know, my extended haiku community is one example. Another is the uh, you know, International uh, Rosary Fellowship, sort of non-Catholic, post-religious, goddess-worshipping Rosary Fellowship that Perdita and I founded the Way of the Rose. Um, you have 25,000 uh, members on Facebook, and we have, you know, uh, I don't know, eight or 10 meetings a week on Zoom and face-to-face meetings, various places, and members all over the world. Some of those people we've become very, very close friends with. Uh, so we have made friends with people who are uh, awake to what's what's going on. Uh, so I don't see it as a reason for uh, uh, not being friends with somebody if they have a differing point of view. I mean, there are uh, people that we sometimes refer to as the white light junkies, right? People who are, you know, have to, for whatever reason, constitutionally have to believe that there will be solutions to every problem. And again, this is really a, a, a belief in light, right? Mm-hmm. The, the white light junkies are literally junkies. They are addicted not just to artificial uh, lighting, but to uh, certainty and to a feeling of, of control 
a, a feeling of basically human supremacy, right? Mm -hmm. The belief, what they really believe in is human supremacy. We will figure this out, they say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. don't think, I don't think we're going to figure it out. In yeah. fact, we keep figuring out ways to, to make it worse. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, um, you know, it's no reason not to be friends with someone, you know, not to be friendly with somebody, certainly no reason to fight with anyone. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's, but, but it does make it uh, difficult to become intimate with somebody, uh, you know, if, if you don't feel that, uh, you know, that they're connected to the, the world you're experiencing. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's hard sometimes. Okay, let's dive into the enchanted part of the book, which is you, you know, people have to get a pretty significant ways into the book. It's a small book, so it doesn't take long, but then we get to the juice. And Perdita did this and take back the magic too. It's like, oh, it's the hand on the door moment. And now we're getting to some real intrigue here. So tell us about your relationship with the mother or who you refer to as my lady or our lady. And I'd love to also hear how was it for you to share that visitation and cultivation of that relationship with your inner circle and then the wider public? Well, that was the, the real uh, turning point in my whole life, I would, I would have to say. I mean, there were moments up until then that I would have said were turning points, you know, various Zen experiences or, uh, you know, uh, sort of, mo you know, initiatory moments that, that felt revelatory or life-changing at the time, but it's really nothing compared to that. Um, prior to June of 2011, in my, you know, fairly vast library of spiritual books and texts, I don't think I had a single book on the Divine Feminine. Hmm. Or maybe I had one, The Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, which I had written, uh, which I had read uh, maybe two or three times without realizing that it was really about the mother. He talks about the mother on every page. Somehow that, that just went over my head. I, I, maybe I didn't take it seriously. I just figured, you know, it was one more patriarchal tradition. Uh, so, you know, I studied Zen Buddhism. I studied it seriously from the time I was 19 and, until I was uh, uh, 33 when I left in 1990. Uh, it was an unapologetically patriarchal tradition where they talk about patriarchs, never talk about matriarchs, where not one woman is listed in in, in the, the lineage going back, uh, you know, 70 some odd generations back to the uh, historical Buddha. Um, you know, I was, I was completely, um, I mean, I swallowed that hook line and sinker. Uh, I believed it. I was a true believer. And when I left Zen, I wasn't sure what to do, but I, I, I think some part of me believed it was possible to get patriarchy right. Okay, so maybe, you know, Japanese Zen Buddhism transla translated into, uh, you know, uh, in some American form, maybe that didn't quite scratch me where I is, but I figured there's a way to get patriarchy right. So I studied every patriarchal tradition. I was completely driven to do it and very restless. And at those, that point, I was beginning to, uh, you know, uh, uh, check out what I was finding on climate.org, which is one of the earliest websites about climate change. And I was beginning to realize that something 
needed to happen. We needed to figure out some way to manage all this. And uh, I figured there must be a spiritual solution. So I looked through texts, countless texts. I reread pretty much every spiritual text I'd ever read, looking for some ecological truth, right? Something grounded, something real. I developed a kind of a, a slogan for myself in that uh, re-education process called, I, I called it ecology, not theology. So I read back through the Bhagavad Gita, the Bible, the, uh, you know, the Torah, the Tanakh, the, the, all of these texts, the Lotus Sutra. And if something didn't have ecological validity, I just threw it out. I said, I'm not interested. I, you know, what use can this possibly be to the world? And this was most of religion, most spiritual texts had no ecological valence at all, no value. But there were surprises. The whole book of Job, for instance, uh, uh, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, you know, there were uh, the songs from the Bible, right? Many parts of the Quran, uh, you know, the Bhagavad Gita, most of the Lotus Sutra. I did find teachings there. But somehow I couldn't make sense over all of them. Something was missing. And then uh, one night I was getting up to go for my usual walk in the middle of the night, uh, 2011. And I had, as you mentioned, I had my hand on the doorknob and I was about to go out and I felt a hand on my shoulder, a hand that wasn't really there, but uh, the pressure of a hand and a voice that also wasn't really there. Uh, spoken to my ear, a male voice said, uh, don't go out, be, stay inside and be very, very still. Later, I read uh, books about apparitions because I was insatiably curious and I needed to understand what was happening to me. I, it wasn't like anything I'd ever experienced before. I had no uh, container for it, I had no way of, 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 of even grappling with it or holding on to it. I read books and they said, yeah, oftentimes, you know, uh, there will be an emissary or a transitional figure who will appear uh, to prepare you as much as you can be prepared. So anyway, I didn't go out. I got on the couch and I did what I had learned to do as a Zen monk. I, I got very still. I could do that. I knew how to do it. So I made my mind very, very still. And after about 45 minutes, I sensed that there was someone in the room. And so I opened my eyes. And I saw a girl of about 17 uh, with a, a round moon-like face, pale, freckles around her nose, hazel eyes, and uh, close-cropped auburn hair, uh, just right there, you know, not, not uh, three feet from me. And over her mouth was an X of black electrical tape. I'd never uh, had a vision like this before. Uh, when I was a Zen monk, they, they taught you that such experiences were makyo or illusion, and you were taught to dismiss them and return to your meditation. So I tried to do that for all of about maybe five seconds. And uh, then I realized that the Zen masters had been wrong. <laughs> I think really that was kind of the, the final death knell of my Zen Buddhist career. That was it. That was the final nail in the coffin. I said, oh, they were wrong because uh, this girl is, is real. Maybe I'm not real. Maybe the whole world is illusion, but not this. This is the most real thing I've ever seen in my life. 
And so I just continued to look at her. And, and then the, there was only really one thing to do, which was to take the tape off her mouth. She clearly didn't like it. I didn't know how it had gotten there. I didn't know who she was. I didn't know anything. All I knew was that the tape had to come off. So I reached out and I, I, I took the corner of it. I didn't dare touch her. I think I was afraid to touch her. I, I just took the corner of the tape and I pulled it off her mouth and she gasped. And her eyes went wide. And then I started to say something, but she shook her head. And, um, and then I looked at her and she looked at me for a long time. And then the Zen monk part of my brain went out and I closed my eyes and went back to meditating. And when I opened them again, she was gone. But that morning, after I went back to sleep, I woke up and I turned the house upside down looking for that tape. I was sure I would find it. The experience had been that that real. I, I knew it was there. I couldn't find it anywhere. I think as the day went on, I began to to I began to realize that something had happened, you know, that would really change everything, you know, about my understanding. And it really did. And the waking up the dark is really a record of that, of that uh, shift in my understanding. You know, I, I describe it in the book as the moment when my uh, mind uh, flipped from its light to its dark side, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I described it as, uh, uh, you know, my mind went off its shutter and I could never get it closed again after that. Mm -hmm. Not that I even really wanted to, but she was always there. And then, uh, you know, two weeks later, she began to speak and she's been uh, uh, speaking ever since. Uh, uh, we write down what she says and uh, share them once a month on Way of the Rose on the 16th of every month. And, uh, you know, most of my uh, understanding today really comes from the things she said, you know. I mean, it, it, it dovetails with much of what I learned up until that point. And uh, it makes sense of a lot of my experience and a lot of what I see happening in the world, a greater sense than I can make of it. Uh, but really, it's, it's uh, uh, you know, it's her message. Uh, and that book, Waking Up to the Dark, is really her book. The last three pages are all her words. The Gospel According to the Dark, her words. Three three solid pages, just her. And the rest of the book is really just the world's longest introduction to the world's shortest book. Everything <laughs> else is just to set that up. Those three so pages. So when you get to the end of the book, there are those three pages. That's really the content of the book. And it's all about collapse. Mm -hmm. uh, and about uh, how not to be afraid of collapse. Uh, but how to understand that we... Uh, we live uh, in deep time. We are beings of deep time. We are time beings. Mm -hmm. So how do you start, how do you explain this to people then? So you had this reckoning with patriarchy <laughs> and now this. Do you call this ecofeminism? Do you call this, do you just call it the gospel of the darkness? Do you, How do you explain to people um, that this has happened. How did like Perdita take it? I mean, we kind of know from reading Take Back the Magic, but I would love, you know, how was it for you as at that time of, you know, you're a fully grown man <laughs> and you're yeah, like, well, so, hey, uh, yeah, was, I'm, yeah, I'm enchanted by this visitation. 50, I was 53 years old, 54, three, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. I mean, uh, Perdita was no more prepared for it than I was. Or I guess she was more prepared, actually. She was. Like, for instance, 
uh, Perdita says, and I believe her, that she always knew that the figure I had seen was the Virgin Mary. I did not want to think about that. Uh, you know, I didn't want, not want to think about, I mean, granted, she's much older than that, older than the church. You know, this, uh, the girl I saw was, was <clears throat> the way I, if I, if, you know, asked to describe her, say who she was, I would have to say that she's, you know, she goes back to those, uh, those little uh, uh, goddess figurines that, uh, you know, our, our ancient ancestors fashioned, uh, you know, as long as, as uh, you know, almost 40,000 years ago, right? She's the great mother of the upper Paleolithic, and she's really even older than that, bigger than that. But, uh, you know, in her uh, current incarnation, you know, culturally, you know, like the, the box that we have for her, the form that we have for her, she really appeared uh, as as the Virgin Mary. And uh, I couldn't admit that at the beginning. I thought, oh my God, does that mean I have to become Catholic? There's no way I'm becoming Catholic. I'm not even Christian. I'm not even religious anymore. I have no use for any of it. So I was sort of terrified of that. But uh, but I think Perdita knew. Uh, toward the end of that summer, we were vacationing on Cape Cod and uh, we had just arrived and I'd gone to sleep and uh, uh, she woke me in the middle of the night. And she said, if you rise to say the rosary tonight, a column of saints will support your prayer. I had no idea what this was referring to. I had taught myself the rosary when I was learning all kinds of different spiritual practices from all these different traditions after I left Zen. You know, I was omnivorous. I taught, I learned or studied or apprenticed with all these different people. I learned so many things. So I, I knew how to say the rosary. So I woke up and I, I said the rosary. Didn't understand what a column of saints might be. I had no, I think as soon as Perdita heard it, she understood that to be the dead. She'd been working with the dead for decades by then. Uh, the dead of the planet, the, our ancestors, the dirt itself the physical matter, the mater of the world, right? Uh, all that's gone before us that makes who and what we are and everything we see possible today. Uh, infusing it with spirit, and with uh, a body and re giving it a body, giving it a reality. But I didn't know any of this. Uh, I just simply knew that something had happened to me and my whole brain was reshuffled. Uh, and I had to make some sense of it. So I started studying. I read everything I could about Marian apparitions. Um, you know, I figured if, you know, there's only one figure who asks you to pray the rosary and makes promises based on whether you do it or not. So I guess at that point, that night, I realized, okay, all right, I'm down for this. But I didn't know what to do. I thought, am I supposed to go to the bishop? She said, no, I don't want you to go to the bishop. The editors are the bishops now. I want you to write a book. So I wrote mm -hmm. Waking Up Dark. And then mm -hmm. Perdita and I together wrote uh, uh, The Way of the Rose, and Perdita wrote Take Back the Magic, which was the third book in the trilogy. All, all together, they tell the story. Uh, mm -hmm. up uh, but I didn't know what to do. And, uh, you know, I didn't talk to very many people about it. There was our local group, you know, which had originally been a meditation group, which became a rosary group, uh, you know, in the shortly after the apparitions began. Uh, and mostly it was just the people in that group who knew about the apparitions. I was in no hurry to, to go off and tell anybody. I was just working away on this book. Uh, but at a certain point, the book was published, you know, and uh, so I began to speak about it publicly. 
Um, I wasn't there, you know, I wasn't given any instruction manual, uh, but, but she, you know, guided me and helped me to do things that, uh, and, and to speak in a way that was so far outside of my comfort zone. I cannot begin to tell you. I mean, I could get up and give a Zen talk. I could behave like some, you know, patriarchal, you know, master know-it-all, you know, that I was pretty good at. Uh, but, you know, how to uh, bear witness to the kinds of things she was saying, report them, you mm. know. Uh, you Do know, you think I, that your stat status as like a older you know you're white haired now you're man in your 60s do you think that inoculates you somewhat from the social scorn that comes from being a channeler well i don't know i don't think of it as channeling for one thing uh because uh that implies some agency or some control you know like to channel means that you're like I don't know, putting putting uh, banks on either side of the flow of this of these words and of and of this uh, person. I don't experience that at all. Uh, you know, I don't have anything to do with it. You're more of a uh, rapporteur kind of thing. Yeah, I, I really, I really just just report what she says. I don't, uh, I don't have any, uh, I don't have any agency in it really. Um, I I've, I have uh, you not read very much about channelers. Well, I have read, I have read about dollars and I know that there's some over, like I just, the, the, for me, the, the term doesn't resonate. Apparitionist, you know, does, oh. you know, as I read about, uh, you know, various, you know, Bernadette of Lourdes and uh, mm -hmm. um, uh, Conchita, Conchita and, uh, you know, ver various of the apparitionists, I, I related to their experience. It felt very mm -hmm. much I was experiencing. Okay. Uh, I think of Mary Magdalene as a channeler. You know, she she but those she three days not. after her man died, she she you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, but but in any case, yeah, I don't. Um, I will say that uh, you know people will ask sometimes, well, why you? And I have to say, I have absolutely no idea. Uh, but I will say that. Um, you know, she she said very early on that she had no interest whatsoever uh, in in my uh, uh, interacting with or or the Catholic Church or trying to reform it or having anything to do with it. She had absolutely no. She almost never even mentions Christianity, religion, or the church. She's much mm -hmm. more interested in uh, our species, where we stand, uh, what our path forward is. Uh, these are the kinds of things she talks about. The long story of souls is her favorite theme, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the, and and our journey through deep time. Mm -hmm. And so uh, she doesn't really get uh, caught up in in you know any of the issues that uh, uh, you know you would normally associate with an apparition of of the Virgin Mary. So I will say that my uh, the fact that I was done with religion. And uh, that my pulse generally wouldn't, you know, wouldn't even quicken around figures like the Dalai Lama or somebody like that. You know, if I had to guess, you know, maybe that was part of the qualification for the job. I don't know. But I just don't get I don't tend to get flummoxed by uh, religious authority. I don't tend to recognize religious authority. Uh, mm -hmm. Doesn't seem to be the point. It seems to be the problem, not the point. Uh, and so I, um, 
I'm pretty much immune to all forms of patriarchal authority and intimidation at this point. <laughs> That's a nice place, did, nice she place did, to be. She did send me after after several years. She she woke me up one morning and said, uh, "Today, I want you to get in the car and drive and find the the highest Franciscan in authority in the Northeast and tell him the story of the apparition." I was so shocked. Uh, it was the only time she ever sent me to a Catholic setting. And she said, one week from now, I want you to find the highest Carmelite and authority in the Northeast and speak to that person and tell them the story of the apparition. First person, uh, you know, was uh, a Franciscan, very nice, older man, looked, didn't look very physically very well, looked terribly overworked. I think he spent most of his time serving the poor. And uh, he had no idea what to do with what I was telling him. He didn't know what to do with an apparition that occurred outside of the church. He didn't know what to do with the Virgin Mary. He had no interest in the church. I went a week later to speak to the Carmelites, and I was interrogated for over an hour by a man in his 90s who was as sharp as a tack and had clearly been trained before Vatican II to interrogate a person claiming to have an apparition of the Virgin Mary. And he really knew what he was about. He spent an hour insulting me, insulting Our Lady, uh, doing everything he could to throw me off my game. Uh, and uh, it was quite an education. All I could think of afterwards was that she wanted me to have the experience of being, you know, that, that these, uh, you know, that these young girls had experienced. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they, they were often, they were often challenged in that same way. You know, they were often, they were grilled and, they, you know, they were told to change their stories, mm -hmm. uh, their words edited and uh, uh, yeah. Oh yeah. I, I think it's George Bernard Shaw who wrote the play St. Joan and in it, there's the, I think he's like one of the guards is like maybe in love with her or something. And he's trying to get her to recant. And it's like, Joan, Joan, can't you see that the, can't you understand that the, the voices you're here, they're only in your head. And she says, how else would God communicate with a human how else how else would that come through but it, it's like such this poignant scene of um the desperation to to deny yeah, yeah. and 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 maintain the human supremacy which of course like you say most religions are so yeah so i guess you know the fact that i you know was older you know had been around the block a few times that i think mostly i just i, I had worn out whatever muscle it was that wanted to exercise that, that the, those, those, you know, authoritarian patriarchal impulses, you know, that, that, that I'd worn, worn through those. I mean, they're still there in me, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you take the, you know, the boy out of the Zen monastery, it's hard, harder to take the Zen monastery out of the boy. Mm -hmm. So I think I still have those impulses in me, but they don't, uh, you know, they don't have the upper hand. I mean, right. they're there. And kind of understand what I'm dealing with when I run up against, uh, you know, like for instance, in Way of the Rose, we have, uh, uh, you know, one of our slogans is no priest, no property, right? Mm -hmm. So we're constantly having people come in, you know, who who want to exercise priestly authority, and we have to say, no, we don't do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you you can't like lead a rosary group, right? You can sponsor one you can show up and help lead the meeting but we don't have leaders like that we don't have authorities we don't have mm. experts right mm. 
Mm-hmm. But so many people want that. They expect that. You know, they arrive in a set, spiritual setting and they want to know who's in charge. Mm-hmm. Very mm-hmm. hard for them to realize that uh, that no one is in charge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like that with the Quakers that too. Okay. And people don't yeah. like how slow the business is. And it's like, well, actually we're here for a meeting for worship with some attention to business, but we're all, we're all just going to, you know, That's right. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's very slow and fascinating, but, but um, yeah, it can frustrate folks. Um, so, okay. So our lady is helping to contextualize and supporting with a recognition of deep time, but what you're doing in your one mortal lifetime is talking about collapse. And here, you know, on the show, in the Numinous Network, just in our lives, uh, Ruben and I, we talk a lot about how collapse is very much already here. It's just unevenly distributed. And um, I personally always hoped that when you know, so I sort of follow John Michael Greer's uh, from the Long oh. Descent, where he talks about like the the stair step decline, and I've always hoped that when we, I, we in my community, we experience like an acute collapse event, I've always hoped and prayed that it would be more of a natural disaster instead of like fascism and war, um, and. In the book, you share about how there's this major power outage that lasts for several days or weeks where you were and how people were kind of secretly like, yes, we're all inconvenienced and we're all out, you know, trying to clear the roads and help each other. But everyone was sort of secretly delighted uh, at being forced to slow down and engage with each other and allow the darkness to just sort of blanket everyone. And it sounded to me a little bit like the early days of the pandemic where we didn't lose light, but people were kind of huddled together or they were coming out of the house and going to the parks. And we would, we would see our neighbors, we would cross the street to be on different sides of the road, but we would talk in that physically distanced way. And, and one of the things that I think is so um, vivid still from the pandemic experience is that embracing the darkness or embracing this calamity, this collapse event is embracing vulnerability. It is about even embracing mortality and awareness of death. And yet that can also bring peace. And so how did you make your peace prior to these like collapse events? You didn't have pandemic or, you know, power outage even. How, How did you make your peace with the inevitability of collapse and the large scale acceleration of death, not just for humans? but for species and for landscapes. Right. Well, you know, the answer is two words, Our Lady. Uh, You know, I I couldn't do that on my own. And, uh, you know, I think it's really her messages, you know, which anyone can read. You can go to wayoftherose.org. And I think the first thing you see pretty much is uh, Our Lady of Woodstock, and you can read all of her public messages, right? You can read the gospel according to the dark. Uh, I think without her messages, I, I don't think I would uh, feel uh, any peace or any, uh, uh, you know, of what Perdita calls the sobriety of the long story, right? Realize that, uh, you know, we've lived many lives before and we've lived many lives, you know, we have many lives to come. Uh, 
I don't think I would be able to experience any of that without her. Uh, in fact, I know I, I, I hadn't uh, before she appeared. Uh, and there was no reason to believe I ever would have uh, been able to uh, understand uh, the things that, uh, that she has, has shown us. I'm sure I wouldn't. Um, I mean, I did a lot of different spiritual practices. I studied under a lot of teachers, some of them very famous. Um, you know, I, I basically treated the spiritual practice like an extreme sport, you know, in my 20s. Uh, you know, I studied at the strictest Zen monastery outside of Japan and, you know, had every experience, spiritual experience that that, um, that kind of um, that kind of environment and that kind of training had to offer. And still, uh, I don't think uh, that I had any real uh, ballast within myself, any real spiritual ballast or really real spiritual understanding uh, that would measure up to even wonder for messages. Uh, so really, it, it's really her. Uh, I would like to say that, um, you know, there's some technique or method or, uh, or you know, habit that you can develop or something like that. But, uh, but really, it's just that wisdom. I think it's there in all of us. Uh, she's been speaking now for tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. As long as we've been human, she's been there, uh, you know, in, in that dark space speaking to us. And uh, we, we've learned to tune her out uh, since the rise of agriculture. I think especially we have developed ways of, of uh, living by our own lights and for ourselves as if we were a law unto ourselves as a species uh, in a way that really denies uh, her, her, her teachings and, and her, her wisdom. Uh, and we have increasingly uh, developed uh, ways of living and interacting with one another that are harmful to ourselves and the planet. Um, but she's always there, and she always has been. And she's been speaking for a long time, and in every culture you find her. Uh, you know, beginning in 1830, I think, which was the same year that the uh, uh, modern railroad rail, uh, uh, railroad system was initiated. Right, basically uh, ushering in the the age of the global economy, pretty much, uh, and and you know the, the the point at which the soul began to move faster than the body. That's the way uh, the body began to move faster than the soul. That's the way I would describe it. We began to outrun our souls, no longer living at the speed of life. Right, mm. the acceleration of life, you know, began then. That was the year that. Uh, 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 the Virgin Mary appeared to uh, uh, a semi-literate nun, Catherine Labouret, uh, in uh, in Paris at Rue de Bac convent. Since then, only those apparitions which the Church recognizes not as being authentic, but recognizes as having gotten on its radar, she's appeared at least five hundred times. There's not if you look at the previous apparitions prior to 1830, right? When 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 uh, human beings began to go off the rails as a species, right? Began to to jump their evolutionary uh, groove. Uh, there are scattered apparitions throughout history, but beginning in 1830, 
uh, she has been appearing constantly all over the world. And not just as the Virgin Mary, uh, she she appears, you know, uh, in in forms that people recognize and speaking to them, mm-hmm. and warning them, mm-hmm. telling them, you know, what's happening, giving them the wisdom and the teaching and the grounding and the love and the care and guidance that they need in order to negotiate uh, the uh, troubles that we brought in ourselves. Mm-hmm. You describe it as the consoling embrace of the darkness. I think that consolation is a beautiful word that we could, we should we should bring back into our lexicon because we need a lot more consolation these days. So let's bring it to today and let's get to some brass tacks here. Collapse person, the collapse person. Okay. Can we talk about like the daily grind of ethical choices in end stage racialized capitalism? So, you know, there's just, there's all these things that are mundane. Um, You know, so Ruben's parents live in the country and, uh, you know, they will not uncommonly have six day power outages, you know, in the winter. And his mom has a sleep apnea machine. And so you got to get, you know, batteries that last through the night and how, then how do you charge it over six days? So, and that is, that can be a life or death thing. And that's just sort of mundane here. We are in the city. Ruben has a sleep apnea machine. Sometimes I look at it and I'm like, wow, this is this is like a dependency that concerns me, but to a mild degree. I we can we can manage snoring. I think about this with um, what prescriptions I take. You know, I'm taking hormones. I love hormones. I have always been loath though to tie my biology to, you know, not just like big pharma, but I've always thought, you know, I don't believe our health our you know healthcare net is expanding i think it's contracting i think it's going to get more expensive and more elite how often are you like making decisions and you know at some point maybe you're tired i don't know what like what's your rationale for like okay fuck it i'm just getting on the plane and i'm going to this place or no i am getting the sleep apnea machine or like yes i am getting the pacemaker um or i'm going to purchase this brand new thing instead of instead of getting it used and and waiting for ages like it it's a pretty even when you're very clear on what your values are there are just times where it's like it's just hard to make the decision how much am i going to resist the overwhelming momentum of capitalism and when am i just like fuck okay i'm making this exception because i'm only human and i only have this one life and like what's what's your process well, you know, I, I guess what I would say is that the uh, capitalism and, and capitalism is the only ism in play here. You know, socialism, all the all the isms, uh, all the ways that human beings have developed of uh, living together in large numbers and collaborating with one another to live in uh, ever larger uh, groups, uh, countries, uh, cities, countries, you know, regions, uh, that we have, uh, in doing so, uh, we have become deluded about what's really going on. Because what it wants from us is the belief that it can be perfected or that it can be fixed. What capitalism wants from us 
really, we think it wants our money, but it's never really just wanted our money. What it wants from us is the belief that it can be perfected, the belief that there is progress, the belief that this is going somewhere other than off a cliff, mm. right? There was a, um, a famous news conference, which I write about in, in uh, a presidential news conference uh, that I, or White House news conference that I write about in Waking Up to the Dark, where a man named John Holdren, one of the, at that time, at least one of the foremost experts on world population. Uh, he was uh, uh, Barack Obama's chief science advisor. And uh, he convened a press conference where he used the following metaphor. He said, uh, describing climate change and where we stand in relationship to it, he said, we're in a car with bad brakes headed through, toward a cliff through the fog. We know the cliff is out there. We just don't know exactly where it is, <clears throat> okay? And then he unpacked that for you know all the reporters. This is reported in newspapers, front page news all over the world, right? Beautiful, I mean, not beautiful, troubling, uh, but but a very, uh, seemingly a very apt metaphor, right? And he explained that, well, uh, you know, the fog is our uncertainty about climate change and where we stand in relationship to it. The bad breaks are, uh, you know, inadequate regulations on greenhouse uh, gases, right? Um, the, uh, you know, and the car is, well, basically us, but especially America, right, creating towards disaster, right? The cliff, he said, is the point of no return beyond which meaningful action is probably uh, uh it, it, you know, there, there really is no meaningful action beyond that point. The point of no return, basically. Tipping point. Okay. He describes everything except the only thing that matters. It's invisible to him. And that's the road. There is only one thing in this metaphor. Not one reporter I read when this happened back in the Obama administration, not, not one reporter noticed, not one commentator noticed that the one, the only important detail in this analogy was unremarked upon and uninterpreted, and it's the road. How do we get on a road going over a cliff? And how soon can we get off of it? That is the only question. There is no other question. All the other questions are just distraction, right? There are the belief and the perfectibility of some way of living as human beings in large numbers we were never meant to live in. The big problem that I see today, uh, uh, in, and again, I, I, I would never have understood any of this. This is really just Our Lady. Uh, the big problem today seems to be the fact that we live in a world the size of a planet in terms of the information that is available to us and the news that is available to us, the anxiety that is available to us, the illusion of control that is available to us. But our sphere of influence is basically what it was in the 11th century. It hasn't significantly expanded. As individuals, uh, we we are caught in a uh, vast uh, system 
right? That as long as we believe in it, as it's in its thrall, and there are really no right moves, there are no solutions, right? The only solution is to stop believing in it. When you stop believing in it, then you find ways to, uh, to, to make decisions that make sense to you and to your family and to your community. You begin to make a sense of life that is more immediate and more grounded and ultimately more durable and more stable. I personally don't have any faith that America uh, will be here by the end of this century. My guess is it'll collapse long before that. Uh, it'll collapse into smaller groups and probably then fragment into even smaller and smaller groups, as I believe countries will all over the world. I can't imagine there will be anything like a country that we imagine as, as we imagine that entity today, one or 200 years from now, nor should there be. I think our only hope is collapse. So collapse isn't something that I fear. Uh, it, it's something that is a cause for hope for me because I think it is only through collapse that human beings will uh, survive and will be, get back on the, uh, the road that leads through deep time and not off a cliff, right? At some point, we got off of a road. Now, if your viewers want to see what that road looks like, you know, there are a lot of different ways you can imagine it. But uh, the one I used in the book uh, is the population uh, curve tracing the growth of the subspecies Homo sapiens sapiens over the, uh, you know, the most recent, uh, I don't know, 12,000 years of its very long history. And if you go to the Wikipedia page and type in like human population and hit images, probably the first image that comes up will be that image. And it, it, it hugs the lower lines, like around a million total, total human beings on the planet or lower for tens of thousands, uh, you know, 10,000 years or so. And then, you know, it, it, it gets to the axial age when the religions start to, you know, when we start to get religion, when human beings begin to decide, basically religion, the point of religion is that humans are the point. Right. But, I mean, that's really what really is. <laughs> the reason why I don't th say, think of myself as religious anymore is the point of religion is that uh, human destiny, the, the, the destiny of the soul, the journey of the soul is the most important thing, right? Well, yeah, clearly no one believed that until the, the you know, agriculture and people living in large numbers required, you know, belief systems and organizational systems to sort of keep them together and to get them to cohere into city states. Before that, people didn't need anything like that, right? But once that happens, and then we find ourselves on this trajectory where it's kind of inevitable that we get, we eventually reach the point where we hit the industrial age. We figure out how to uh, mine ancient sunlight, basically, and bring it all to the surface uh, and use it and put it back into the atmosphere. And at that point, uh, the human population, because we also learned about petrochemical fertilizers, we're able to produce, you know, uh, uh, a lot more food than we had before, suddenly the human population goes straight up. And so if you look at it like this, it looks like a growth curve. It looks like something you might see at a, at a corporate seminar, or corporate report, say, oh, that's great news. Just imagine if you had put your money on this unpromising little naked ape species, right? 
you know, I don't know, 40, 50,000 years ago, if you put your money, look at where you'd be today, right? Mm -hmm. Such growth, such promise, so much culture, right? So much civilization, so many, you know, amazing artifacts. But if you take that and you lie it out flat, then it becomes a road going off a cliff. <laughs> Right. right. It's no longer leading through deep time. It's no longer sustainable. Mm -hmm. This little species could hobble along. It could have at least as long a future as it had a past. Mm -hmm. Right. But instead, this growth curve, flip it over, make it flat. And you see that it is a journey that goes out. And then suddenly it takes a hard left turn. And it's no longer on a path through deep time. It's on a path over a cliff. Mm -hmm. So in our house, we sort of think about like, okay, here we are, we're caught in the predicament. Uh, we we're in a system that we can't totally live outside of, nor would we choose to, because all the people we know and love <laughs> and all of the, you know, right. that, right. and like fulfillment of work and, you know, being together and being expressed and having people witness it means we're not, we, we don't want to live totally, you know, off grid or try to escape and nor do we want to escape what is actually happening. It's like, okay, so we're in this together. I personally spiritually believe I've been born in this particular era and epoch at be, for, I don't know what the purpose is, but I want to make it meaningful, my presence here. So we, but we do try to think about when we have choices to make, can we, can we move towards living closer to our ancestors would have a hundred or 150 years ago? Cause I think a hundred years from now, people will be living much more like a hundred or 200 years ago. So what can we do in terms of decisions? We recently got a vehicle um, which we had for a short period of time. So we could uh, try to make longer distance trips to see Ruben's aging parents. And we were like, wow, this it is astonishing how quickly when you're not in a car co-op and have all the barriers to getting a vehicle, how quickly you become a car person who doesn't take oh, your bike anymore. Yeah. It's just instantaneous. There's other things I can think of like uh, you know, I can say there's a lot of ethical reasons why I don't invest in the stock market. I don't have savings and things in there. And those things are true. But also, I just don't believe in it. Like, I just don't. And then I don't want to, I just don't want to live in the world where the stock market is how I can survive my retirement. And, I, you know, and it's like really land is my security and my proximity to patriarchy means that we're going to get Ruben's parents land is paid off. So I just have to be patient. But kind of coming back to this, how often do you just say, ah, oh, fuck it, we're going off the cliff. So I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna get this, um, you know, takeout cup. Oh, I <laughs> Whatever, see. Whatever, yeah, you right, know. Right. <laughs> how, what's well, your rationale for your life? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, we, we live uh, fairly simply. We don't travel very much. Occasionally we go on pilgrimage. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, but, you know, my father uh, died. Um uh, summer before last. And so that, you know, and he lives, uh, you know, he and my mother moved to Selma, Alabama some years ago. And so that entailed, uh, you know, a number of trips, rental cars and all of that, you know, that, that, you know, I had, that just had to be made. And, uh, you know, at, at the, in those moments, you don't think about, you know, the planet, you know, or, or, you know, the consequences of, uh, you know, of travel. Um, so, you know, there are moments when you just respond humanly 
uh, to the demands and needs. But on a day-to-day basis, uh, you know, Pradeet and I work at home and we work for ourselves. And, uh, you know, now with Zoom, you know, uh, it's a internet technology, but it's, you know, what's available. And I'm able to work with uh, haiku students all over the world. So I don't have to travel around by, by uh, you know, air travel like I used to back in the 90s. I was traveling all over the country teaching haiku poetry. Now I just, uh, you know, uh, teach on, uh, on, on Facebook, basically, or on Zoom. Uh, uh, you know, all week long, pretty much with my students. And so, um, uh, you know, I, our, our needs are not such that, you know, we have to consume a lot. Mostly it's a matter of knowing what you really want. I know Perdita has written a lot about this, especially recently. Uh, that this again is something our lady taught us. Uh, she, uh, has told us that, uh, our only protection against empire it's the heart's desire. The only protection, real protection against empire is the heart's desire. Empire wants to tell us what to desire. It wants to tell us what to work for, what to reach for. It wants to tell us what's important. It wants, it wants to tell us what to live and die for. Basically wants to uh, take our own desires and bend it to its will. This is what every large scale organ, human organization with the possible exception of like Alcoholics Anonymous, right? Literally, which is about addiction, which is about the problem. Uh, every large scale human institution uh, since World War II uh, has had the underlying purpose to dominate the individual, to delegitimize private personal experience, right? Private thought, right? And uh, everything from advertising to, uh, you know, uh, uh, the laws that we live by, our government, our voting system, all of it. And to reclaim the heart's desire to ask ourselves what it is that we really, truly, truly want uh, is, is really our only protection. I like to, you know, when people bemoan the, the collapse of civilization, I like to remind them that, and again, you know, I, I, I feel like an imposter here because none of these, none of these insights are, are mine. Uh, I mean, I've written about them and I guess I was a good person because I'd read so much and spent so much of my life writing. Maybe I'm a good person to write about them, but the insights are a ladies. They're not mine. So I often say there's a difference between human culture and human civilization. We had human culture for for as long as we've been human. We had human culture, people will say for, well, I don't know, 120,000 years, but really, you know, we had some kind of culture long before that, right? You know, the oldest beads, I don't know how, you know, bead making culture, bead making technology is one of the earliest forms of technology, right? And that goes back, you know, hundreds of thousands of years. So we had culture for a long time. We had uh, dance, we had art, storytelling, music, food, cooking. Uh, we had so much human culture before we had human civilization. We think we can't live without civilization. We think we'll surely die if civilization collapses, it's the end of us. Because we can't separate human culture from human civilization in our minds. 
human culture is a matter of the heart's desire. It's driven by the heart's desire. It's about community and friendship and love, care, beauty, meaning, significance, right? Uh, you know, that that doesn't really usually cost a great deal or its costs are fairly minimal, right? Now, our Way of the Rose group, for instance, we don't have any monetary, there's no monetary component. Okay, I mean, we raise money once a year, uh, you know, to pay our webmistress because we have to have a website so that people, <laughs> you know, can go and get the Zoom links to go to meetings and so they can read our ladies' messages and stuff like that, right? Information sharing. But that's it. Uh, you know, so there, there's no money involved, no, no dues or fees. And that way it's a lot like, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, right? Mm -hmm. There are no dues or fees. Anybody can just show up. They don't have to pay anything. Just walk into the room, right? Mm -hmm. Our organizational system is very similar to that. But it's 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 designed to protect us from a culture that wants to monetize everything. And we constantly have people coming into our group because we're a very large, very active Facebook group wanting to advertise in our group, right? To monetize it or game it in some way. We have to tell them, no, we don't do that. What we do is we pray the rosary for our heart's desire and encourage other people to do the same, right? Or support others in doing the same. That's it. That's our core mission. That's all we do. But that's enough. It doesn't have to be the rosary. It can be, you know, you can use uh, any number of, of, of spiritual practices or prayer practices or chanting. There's a Japanese Buddhist group I studied for many years, uh, Nishiren Buddhism, where they chant Nam Yoho Renge Kyo, but they chant it for the heart's desire. And again, that that is really our only insulation from, our only protection from empire. Empire will corrupt everything but the heart. Mm. The heart is the only thing that's immune to it. AI can never penetrate the human heart. It can game it, it can try to predict it, that can't get in there, doesn't know what it is. AI doesn't know what a heart's desire is. Mm -hmm. No way to fathom it. No way to understand it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you, as a practice in your home, uh, embrace the dark? And and by the way, in, in my membership space, the Numinous Network, we as part of our annual Yuletide rituals, as we prepare for our winter solstice ritual, we're inviting everyone to have three nights of candlelight uh, as kind Wonderful. of like a way to dip our toe in <laughs> this idea, because, you know, I mean, it's get, come on, it's getting dark at like 345 where I live, you know, so it's a long time. So we're going to do three nights of candlelight. I will admit, I actually feel nervous about it. You know, it, it's like, gosh, I, you know, okay, I'm going to turn out all the extra lights. We kind of always do that for energy <coughs> anyways, but it's like really intentionally bumping up the time when we turn out the light and like not going into Netflix at 10 PM or something. It's like, wow. Okay. We're going to do that for three days. I'm a little nervous. Do you and Perdita do this? How do you embrace the darkness in your day to day? And do you have any advice for those of us who are going to um, kind of experiment with it for a little bit this year? Well, you know, our, our son who lives in, uh, uh, north of Boston comes home un unexpectedly <laughs> several times a month. And when he comes back, whatever rules we might have for, you know, you know, sort of thrown out the window because we want to spend time with him and stay up with him, whatever. Um, I will tell you that 
we moved into uh, a hippie house in Woodstock that we fell in love with at first sight in 1996 that, that we like to joke was built by uh, two carpenters uh, on a case of beer and a bag of pot in a weekend. So <laughs> it's not the best. It's, it's a wonderfully designed house with windows everywhere. So a lot of natural light, a lot of land, a lot of wild animals walking through our yard. So we love it. But uh, the fixtures are always breaking. And when they break, I don't repair them. <laughs> so our house has gradually gotten dimmer and dimmer over the years. <laughs> and sometimes a bulb will burn out and I'll just won't, I'll forget to change it, right? It's just like not a priority. It's just like, and well, like the there, there's an overhead light, which is, you know, we always buy the dimmest bulbs you can get uh, in our, our living room. And it burned out and it was burned out uh, it was the main source of light in our in our main uh, you know communal space next to the fireplace, and it was burned out, and I didn't replace it for like I don't know six or seven months, <laughs> and then you know we realized we were having company over for a party or something. I said, God, I really should put that light bulb back in, so I did. <laughs> but now I mostly just turn it off. So I, I think that. Uh, you know, it, it's important to realize that the idea of purity police, like, you know, right, the, the purity police telling you absolutely no electrolytes or absolutely, uh, you know, no this or that or no sugar or no, or no alcohol or whatever. Uh, the purity police is a uh, is, is, is one of those unfortunate byproducts of uh, large scale communal uh, living, right? Uh, you take get people in small groups and they may have, uh, you know, we're, we're, you know, very small communities like hunter gatherer type communities and they may have taboos. Right. But in terms of like the day to day negotiating of of life and how they live it, uh, they mostly live it by traditions and by taboos. Certain things are taboo because for whatever reason, they brought misfortune on a people, right? So we, those things we just don't do, right? And they make, they usually make a kind of sense if you go back far enough and figure out, you know, how they got started. But the traditions are a more positive version of that. And so uh, we have traditions like of lying in bed and, and talking to one another in the dark, which we often do, right? Or, uh, you know, like we, for a long time, we were reading poetry to one another by candlelight, which was a lot of fun. We read like uh, Longfellow's Evangeline, a lot, a lot of like old, you know, like 19th century, like epic type poems that people don't read anymore. Uh, this was about the Acadian expulsion, you know, which we were got very interested in. So we read this long, very sad poem, you know, very beautiful. Uh, Perdita and I memorize uh, poetry together and recite poetry to one another. So these are sort of like, we also lie in bed in the morning uh, before uh, this, oftentimes before the sun comes up, before we've turned on any lights, right? For the, to begin the day. And uh, we will uh, recite our prayers together. And our prayers include a lot of uh, prayers we've written ourselves or adapted right, to make them to our liking. And they also include poetry like uh, Yeats, Sailing to Byzantium, which we're recently memorizing uh, line by line. So we read, we memorized much of the Gospel of Matthew 
the Sermon on the Mount. We would recite that for a long time in the morning. We would recite those together. So these are traditions, prayer traditions, devotional traditions that we share. Uh, that uh, So I think that um, it's a great idea to light candles, but and to turn out the lights, right? Especially, you know, you're talking about the winter solstice, right? The lead up to the solstice on the 21st. It's a great way to honor that or to prepare for that. Uh, so the lighting of the candles is uh, a ceremony and itself. And uh, you, you understand the value of light. Candles teach us the value of light and also the value of darkness. They teach us faith. They teach us all kinds of things. The reason why all over the world there are uh, traditions of celebrations of light about this time of year, right? The darkest night of the year is when you can see the smallest light the most brightly, right? When it warms the heart and, and it's the most beautiful. Candlelight is very beautiful this time of year because there's so much darkness. And when you blow out a candle, you experience the darkness in a completely different way than you do when you just flip off a switch, right? You light a candle in the dark and you experience the light in a way you ordinarily wouldn't. You blow it out and you experience the darkness in a different way. You know, this week um, I, I teach a, a group on uh, Facebook called Weekly Haiku Challenge with Clark Strand. And uh, this is where the real, honestly, I think probably the finest haiku poets writing in, in the English language from Italy, from France, from America, various different places around the world. We all agree to write on a, a the same season word or the same word indicating something from a particular season uh, uh, every week. And everybody submits up to eight poems and we put them all in the mix and then uh, uh, I and uh, several of our other haiku teachers, you know, uh, will choose poems to write commentaries on, you know, from, and then there are honorable mentions. So, you know, out of three, I don't know, three or 400 poems that get submitted every week, you know, we'll, we'll usually choose maybe 40 honorable mentions and I don't know, maybe write essays on maybe 20 or 30 poems, right? Wow. And then share those the following week. This week, we're writing about putting up lights, huh. right? The Christmas lights or Hanukkah lights, right? Candles, right? And it's because this is the time of year when, uh, you know, those things are are, 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 are are at their peak. Like the, the, the season word in, in haiku is is not necessarily, it, it, it's not that it only appears in that season, like the, the, the robin, for instance, for spring. It's a spring season word from the animal category. You could see a robin other times of year, but that first robin of springtime, right? That's when you want to write a haiku about a robin. Is oh, <laughs> the robins are here. Spring has arrived, right? And the time you want to write about candles uh, is, is sometime over the next few weeks, right? as the nights are getting really, really long. Some, somehow a candle brings comfort in the darkness in a way that, a, that a, a, an overhead light or a lamp doesn't. Mm -hmm. There's an agency, an intentionality. People burn candles and attach prayers to them. Our Lady said once that, you know, uh, modern therapy would be greatly improved if there were altars with candles for uh, patience to light on their way out the door. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. 
And that's so, why people still do that in churches to this day. They go with a prayer. And rather than just giving the prayer and then leaving and leaving nothing behind, they light a candle there so that their prayer keeps burning. So uh -huh. that the intention that they set is kept alive and burning and bright. Uh -huh. yeah. uh -huh. So Clark, how do you personally cope with grief? and rage and all of those parts. Like it's nice to be able to have the, the consoling conversation of the piece of collapse, but prior to that, <laughs> or when things happen that are shocking, distressing, or just, you know, some arrows just go deep, right? You see something in the news and it's just, it's, it's it causes such anguish. How do you, what's your practice emotionally for all of this with grief and rage? Well, I'll, I'll I'll choose something that that brought both up in equal uh, portions for me, which wasn't something I saw in the news, but something that happened to me, and that was uh, the death of my uh, my stepfather, uh, and my adoptive father, uh, who was really the only father I knew growing up, and he died uh, uh, the summer before this last summer, and uh, I felt after his death both grief and rage. Rage because he was a very difficult authoritarian father, a private school headmaster who administered corporal punishment and was, uh, you know, sort of the principal antagonist for me uh, growing up, uh, you know, the person I struggled with the most and uh, experienced the most uh, pain in my relationship with. Also, in some ways, the person who influenced me the most, right? Uh, the person who, you know, my life, you know, was in some sense a, a desire to, you know, I wanted to please him, also wanted to prove him wrong. You know, poets can't make a living, and so I proved him wrong. So so there was that. So there was the, but there was also a, a deep grief, you know, there's tremendous grief in someone like that, you know, even someone you've struggled with or had a difficult relationship with. And even if, like me and my dad, you experience some late life reconciliation where you uh, you know, uh, uh, air everything and, and talk through things and, and find some resolution or peace. Even so, uh, afterwards, there there's there's this tumult, inner tumult, and I experienced it, both grief and rage. I go back and forth. And the only thing I can say is that, uh, you know, I, I had a daily uh, uh, prayer uh, devotion, which was the for me, the rosary. Finally, you know, that was the thing I settled on permanently after having tried everything from Zen meditation in a monastery to, you know, uh, uh, chanting the Psalms to, you know, whatever, you know, various uh, Hindu mantras. I've done everything. Uh, the rosary was what I settled on. So the rosary was where I went uh, to, uh, you know, pour my, my rage and my grief. And, you know, the, the rosary is structured in such a way that it can hold that. You hold the beads and the beads hold you. And, um, and so gradually, uh, over time, you know, those uh, feelings have, have, have mellowed. That, that would be the best way I'd describe them. You know, I, I've, I've found my way to, to pass through them. I think the, the rage or the grief that we experience in response to news stories, um, it, it can seem very deep. And for people who, for instance, my uh, uh, my brother-in-law's wife is Israeli. She has uh, a family in Israel. Now they're very, very progressive. They lived on a kibbutz 
I think the only kibbutz in Israel at one point where both Palestinians and Israelis uh, worked and lived side by side. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're hardly like fundamentalists or militant. Uh, but nevertheless, she has family there. And so the news affected us differently than it would be people who didn't have family in Israel. My, uh, my nephew also uh, worked as a liaison between um, uh, Bedouin tribes in the West Bank, you know, various, uh, you know, various Bedouin tribes and, and uh, 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 you know, various Muslim uh, populations in the West Bank. He was a translator. He was sent there actually to monitor the Israeli army make sure they weren't committing atrocities against uh, the Bedouins. And to the Bedouins didn't trust him because he was Jewish. And the army didn't trust him because, you know, he was basically their watchdog. So when we watch the what's going on there, we it, it, it arouses in us, uh, you know, a, a feeling that's different than that you're just really, you don't have a, you know, a stake in it, or you don't understand the complexities of the situation. You don't have people who are actually at risk. Uh, Adam knew people who died on both sides. People he worked with died on both sides. Yeah. So, um, but usually what we see on the news uh, affects us uh, uh, at the level of uh, where we feel, uh, uh, we feel rage because we feel impotence. And we feel grief because we don't know what else to feel. And, uh, and, and it's a very different kind of feeling than the feeling that you have uh, when you have direct contact with the object of your rage or your grief, right? Uh, the death of a family member or uh, discord in your marriage or losing a job or having to suddenly uproot your child from one school and move to another, right? That's very, very different. That's a full body experience. Um, I think that the, uh, uh, you know, various forms of media, especially social media, you know, give us the illusion of influence and control that we don't actually have. And it gives us the, uh, the illusion of responsibility uh, to people in far off places that, you know, theoretically as human beings we have just on a humanitarian basis, but practically on a level of our actual influence and our ability to influence outcomes, we don't have in proportion to the level of rage and grief that we feel. And so what you get nowadays is a, is a lot of, uh, you know, performative uh, grief and rage on on social media a lot of people canceling one another right out of grief and rage right uh but it's mostly frustration it's mostly driven by frustration and this terrible feeling of impotence that lies at the heart of 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 of, of modern life and the absence of a heart's desire which can inform uh our lives in, in, a, in a deeper way and give us the resilience that we need to actually improve the world so that would be my my take on it again well, none of this none of these my insights none of them not a one i just work here <laughs> well you're a very good scribe uh clark i appreciate your devotion to the lady and everything that you've shared 
uh, you know, as somebody who has been talking about social scorn around intuition and who has the sort of epistemic privilege of being in a woman's body and understanding what dismiss being dismissed and, uh, punished and vilified. I know what that's like and how much of that is around describing the numinous. And so I appreciate that you're picking up some share here for the uh, white men of a certain age and sticking your neck out a little bit. It's good to see it. And thank you so much for uh, your work and thanks for being so devoted and, and well, sharing thank it with you, everyone. Carmen. Thanks for thank being you. here. Thank you. It's been a privilege and uh, I love I love the whole idea of your podcast and, you know, the, 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 the numinous, you know, people, people talk about, uh, you know, I write about darkness, but most of most of the book is is really about that in between space where we can actually, you know, we're not quite in the dark, but we're standing somewhere in between so that we can, you know, share it and experience it with one another. So thank you for what you're doing on, you know, a day by day, week by week basis to keep that spirit alive. A gentle yet frank conversation about the climate crisis, collapse, and things we can do to resist, but also, and I think especially, to hone in on our heart's desire and focus on the love and joy that we want to ensure for future generations. You know, the cultural work we want to do in how we show up as a person partner, a friend, a family, a community member? Like, what are the customs and traditions and life ways we want to preserve? There are even things I used to do that I've fallen away from that this conversation reminded me of. Like, Ruben and I used to read poetry to each other at night all the time. You know, we have a couple's tattoo with lines of our favorite poem for each other. It's good to remember that actually we have and we already do plenty uh, to resist and to keep that heart's desire at the center of our lives. And we should just keep doing more of that. So thanks very much to Clark for reminding us of that. I highly recommend his book, Waking Up to the Dark. It would make a great wintertime gift. And I invite you to spend wintertime with us in the Numinous Network. We're embracing the dark with three nights of candlelight as a community ritual from December 19th to 21st. And then the magic really begins in earnest with 12 days of Yuletide. So that runs December 21st to January 1st. Each day there's a short podcast about the folklore surrounding that day's Yuletide theme. There are ritual suggestions, altar suggestions, a three-minute guided meditation. So you just like drop in, get some contact nutrition, absorb the goodness, pop out, you know, you could do it between errands, you know. And this year, we have a 15-minute live stream of altar time every day. Just a quiet, reflective moment together at the altar. I joked that it has friendly giant vibes. Remember the friendly giant children's show? Look up, way up, you know? And then how he would organize the chairs in front of the fireplace and like, He'd do that at the beginning, then he'd do it at the end of the of the show. He'd he'd rearrange the the chairs in front of the little miniature fireplace, and the friendly giant would say, "It's late, and this little chair will be waiting for one of you, and a rocking chair for another who likes to rock, and a big armchair for two more to curl up in when you come back. And I'm gonna close the front doors behind you and pull up the drawbridge after you leave. Okay, bye bye. That kind of thing is 
<laughs> so, so the friendly giant is like the patron saint of the spirit of Yuletide in the Numinous Network. We're, we're anti-capitalist, we're in our jam jams, and we are getting cozy by candlelight every day, December 21st to January 1st. So I hope you'll join us for that and bring all your householders with you. You know, people love doing this together with roommates, their partners, their kids to, to help you be inspired to create new customs that are really the old customs. I hope you'll join us. Just go to my website to check out all the details at carmenspaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care.